Stay hungry, stay foolish. This show is brought to you with thanks to Microsoft for Startups. Today's episode is about the creation of a new global currency. Unlike traditional currencies such as the dollar, yen, or euro, this currency strives to be a risk-free store of value. And unlike Bitcoin, which tethers to a finite number of units, this store of value tethers to zero risk. As a result, it is constrained not by an arbitrary number of units, but by market forces of supply and demand. These foundational ideas are not new nor unique. A privately controlled market-based currency striving for zero risk is arguably the holy grail of multiple influential thinkers and Nobel laureates and the basis for many monetary and investment theories. What is new is that advancements in capital markets when combined with new technologies make it possible for society to facilitate old ideas in new ways. We welcome author of Money Without Boundaries, How Blockchain Will Facilitate the Denationalization of Money. Thomas Anderson, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Aiden. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Tom, let's dive straight into it the way you do in the book. And you talk about the paradox of money, where you share the concept that money has three different roles in society. One, a unit of value. Two, a medium of exchange. And three, a store of value. Yeah, those are the roles that money is supposed to have. And I think that we're at a crossroads where we're trying to figure out what it is. And I, I think that this time that we're in right now is just kind of an interesting time to reflect on each one of those. So let's start with money as like a way to buy something. Have you used cash recently? Not for a very long time. And it's interesting about cash, actually. Now that COVID hit, they banned cash, essentially. It's been used to kind of go, well, you shouldn't pass money around because it could be infected as well. And I, I thought of that when I was reading your book. Right. So, I mean, we've already kind of taken a step as a society to recognize that that money is not physical paper. That's not necessary for transaction. We can be just fine using our, our credit cards, our debit cards, our you know Apple Pay, Google Pay, whatever the, the, the method is. So that method, though, of, of money was historically an important one that I think is is no longer, uh, you know, really uh, a, a piece of it. So and, and so then I think when we come into the next pillar, uh, what country are you sitting in today? I'm sitting in Dublin, Ireland. I love Dublin. It's it's great. I actually had a wonderful time. The woman that I love, we decided to get engaged uh, in Dublin. It's, it's fabulous. Oh, nice. I, just, I want to spend more time there. So you're in Dublin and, and I'm in Chicago. If you hopped on a plane, which I know is difficult to do right now, but you hopped on a plane and you came over here and we wanted to head out to a, a pub and, and grab a pint, or I wanted to hop on a plane and fly over to Dublin and you know either take my wife out for dinner or take you out. Uh, I'm not worried about my ability to walk into a restaurant there and order something. And you're probably not worried about your ability to walk in to here and buy something. Is that is that pretty fair? That's absolutely fair. Yeah. So I think then if, if we're not using money in, in this aspect of we don't need the paper bills and I can fly to, you know, China or India or Timbuktu and I can buy things, then the, the question really has not, with money, it's not about the transactional methods. It's about the piece that you talked about, which is the store of value. And that's what I think is the most, that's what fascinates me. So what 
is it that makes money valuable? And so I basically, when I, I came into this book, I started with a, a study of the history of money. And then I kind of looked at the, the major changes that took place throughout the you know, 20th century, because that was a major movement in defining what is money. And, and now I think we're at a generational change in terms of this concept of, of store of value. And so I basically isolate the other two. And, and my focus really is this, what is money as a store of value? Like, what is it anymore? You mentioned there about traveling. And in the book, you talk about a trip you took to a rural tea farm in China and merchants there were literally crabby with you for trying to pay with cash. <laughs> and I'd love if you shared this story just to put it in context, because I'd really like to double down on the history because the history is absolutely fascinating because so many of us are unaware of it. Yeah, I think so. So we'll look at where we are today. And then I think we'll kind of do a little bit of a backtrack. But I'll tell you that story about China. So I have this good friend, uh, his name's Kevin. And um, we went to a city called uh, Hangzhou, which is um, kind of the, the Silicon Valley of, of, of China. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing city. And it's, it's beautiful. It has this, this gorgeous giant lake um, and, and these beautiful historic monuments with also this kind of juxtaposition of this, this modern city. And, and just outside of it are these really cool uh, tea villages. And they, they harvest a special form of, of tea there. Longjing uh, tea is, I believe, how it's, it's pronounced. And so Kevin takes me out and we go to this rural place and we he knows this woman because he lives in this area and and it's like she's like a grandmother and and he's like we're having this very special tea that she's making on her patio for us that was it, it was very very special and I said well, I'd love to buy some of this and this is some of the most special tea that that is in China and I don't have Alipay which is the electronic payment form and I could not pay her uh, in cash she didn't want my cash and so Kevin had to Alipay her. And then I asked Kevin, I said, well, can I pay you in my cash? And he said, I don't want your cash either. And so I, <laughs> I literally, uh, I could not pay in cash. Uh, um, street beggars <clears throat> actually have these QR codes where they would rather that you essentially, it's like Venmo, if you're familiar with that, but you just, they'd rather receive payments electronically than, than cash. It's amazing how cashless society is moving today. I share that to just give a little bit of a context of where we are today. And everybody think about this listening, because think about this period of lockdown. Nobody's really exchanged cash. This has all been electronic pay, paying for your groceries. Everything's been delivered. Everything's happening in a digital world. But let's, as you say there, jump into the DeLorean and get the flux capacitor boot, booted up and go back and have a little <laughs> journey back to the past. Because you share the history of money. People have used everything from shells to glass beads to salt as stores of value. And for centuries, humans have relied on gold as their store of value. Yeah. So let's, I love that. We'll, we'll jump in the DeLorean with the flux capacitor and, and take a trip through time. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of, of my version of kind of the, the history of money. People did, you know, barter and trade, but it was, you know, quickly inefficient for me to say, hey, I have an ox and you have grain you know, how do I trade you an ox to make a loaf of bread? And so, so people started using different, you know, methods, beads and so forth, as we as we're talking about. And, and something that became a very accepted store of value uh, was gold. And so that, that kind of covers this time up to, to zero. But I think starting at zero is interesting because if you were hanging out with, you know, Julius Caesar, Mark Antony or Cleopatra, 
and you wanted to pay your soldiers, uh, you paid them in, in gold. Gold was a, a, the, the store of value uh, during that time. Fast forward to 1492, you know, Christopher Columbus, when he head out to the Americas, uh, he was really proud in saying, coming back to Spain saying, hey, I've discovered uh, gold. A lot of this was a, a, a quest uh, for gold. And, and on that land, essentially, that he discovered, um, you know, the British had this as a colony. And then, they, you know, Americans kind of said, hey, we don't like this rule anymore. So they kind of said, hey, let's kick out uh, British and, and, and we'll make our own country and we're going to call it the United States. And so they said, well, we need to form a, a currency. And they chose to form that currency as the dollar, which was backed, of course, uh, by gold. So if you're hanging out with George Washington and Ben Franklin, um, uh, or hanging out with monarchs of, of England during this point in time, everybody considered gold uh, to be a store of value. Fast forward, and we had the Civil War in the United States. Abe Lincoln broke the gold standard. And England, similarly, um, had a couple of times that it went off uh, the gold standard without dorking out on it too much. But essentially, that was put back together. And when we came into the early 1900s, um, everybody really uh, reunited on a gold standard up until about the, the late 1920s and the 1930s was a really strong inflection point. But that's about 2,000 years of history with whether or not you're hanging out with Julius Caesar, Ferdinand and Isabella, Christopher Columbus, George Washington, pick your favorite monarch, gold is what was the store of value through that 2,000 year period of history. And then you go on to say in the 1900s, the definition of money in the United States began to change. Let's share this next. So it's part of the United States, and it's also a very interesting story with respect to, to England. In the 1900s, if, have you seen the show uh, Mary Poppins? Yeah, man, yeah, that, I'm showing my age there. Yeah, the original, <laughs> the original. <laughs> the original, the original. So it kicks off with this guy named, you know, George, and he's like singing a song at the beginning, kind of taps his kids on the head and has his brandy and he's like saying you know it's a it's a great time to be living in london and if you think about it like england started this that the century the past century with the world's greatest navy and and the sun never set on their empire and and then you look at where they are today and and they're things have clearly changed right they they had this huge first mover advantage in a century that created arguably more wealth than any other century and, and so you have to say well what what happened there? And I think a lot of the story is, is a money story. And after World War I, England was unable to essentially maintain a lot of their, their gold standard. And so they started to, to break from, away from the gold standard. And, and the United States was able to hold it for a little bit. But then in the 1930s, FDR um, actually ended up making it illegal for uh, US citizens to own gold. He, he confiscated all of the gold. Uh, he put it into Fort Knox and he reset uh, the price of gold and he established the dollar as a, 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 a currency backed by gold, um, but it wasn't convertible in the United States. So it was only convertible in international markets. And essentially that's where the world sat until you came into the uh, 1950s uh, in a period, late 40s, and a period following uh, World War II. But, but that was a big break in what was happening with countries during that, you know, 1930s to 50s. But then we start to get into the kind of much more interesting things. When you zoom out, right, and you look at how events, every event in history has a huge consequence somehow. And, and oftentimes, 
we don't know how it's going to play out. It's just in a consequence that will play out over many years. And often crises like the one we're going through now, this global pandemic, will have a major impact that we don't know yet how it's going to play out. And I thought about how when you were talking about money and you talk about this in the book, World War II had a huge impact on the strength of the dollar, for example. A huge impact. And to your point, I mean, each action has these kind of counter reactions. And you have to think about these macro themes, which will become understanding this history. I think I'm going to show to you, I think is important in, in predicting the future down the exact path that you said. So, you know, after uh, World War II, a bunch of people got together um, uh, from many countries around the world at something called Bretton Woods. And they established that there was going to be a global reserve currency, uh, the U.S. dollar, which was going to be backed by gold. We reset the price of gold and other currencies then pegged themselves to the dollar. And it's at that moment in time that the dollar really became uh, the world's uh, global reserve currency. England had a, a, a period in there that they were they were also kind of a part of that system. Um, but essentially that fell out, which left really the United States as the last man standing as a gold backed currency. And that continued until the 1970s. Following on from that World War II impact and the, the pegging of against the dollar, a key event took place when Richard Nixon interrupted another show that I remember, <laughs> which is the most popular TV show of the era, which was Bonanza. And Nixon interrupted this because he knew most Americans would be watching it to make a major announcement. Yeah. So what happened in 1971, it was August of 1971, is so the United States has this role of, of maintaining a gold uh, standard. And essentially, uh, pressure had, had, had built up where we could no longer uh, maintain it. We did not have enough gold to back, uh, to back these dollars. And so once Nixon came on the air and interrupted Bonanza and said, hey, world, uh, don't don't worry about this gold standard. Um, uh, we're just we're good for it, man. We're the United States and we're just going to back this money uh, with our word. And this was a, a pivotal, pivotal change for society, because as we had just kind of done, we did the 2000 years of history. We'd had this gold standard and now. Now there's this, this question starts of, of what is money? And a, a couple of famous economists along the way have been asking questions, but this gold standard that Bretton Woods was, was, was this quasi-gold standard that Milton Friedman said was destined to fail. And here he was right. It did fail just a, a short, relatively short, you know, 25 to 30 years later. But at that point in time, another economist, Frederick Hayek, said, Look, man, if this money isn't backed by anything, then what is money? And so you started to get a lot of questions about what is money? What is banking? What are these things that people have? And questions really started through those 50s and 70s. But once Nixon broke that tie, nobody knew what money was at that point anymore. Yeah. And when I was reading this, it reminded me of an incident. Well, many incidents when I was a kid. I was one of these kids always asking questions uh, to myself, mainly because nobody People got bored of listening, <laughs> listening to my questions, but our, we, I lived in a I lived in a beautiful part of Dublin. We had a beautiful garden and had a rockery, and the rockery had these volcanic rocks. And the, in the volcanic rocks, there was you know those kind of fake crystals. Yeah, yeah, the geodes. Yeah, and I was frustrated to think, why is that 
worth nothing while a diamond is worth something and all the all the value is attributed to diamonds which were in turn more valuable because of a perceived scarcity uh, and some genius social programming I, I have to add but i share all that to say that a currency has an underlying economic value itself but it holds no value if there's unlimited supply so if a government can keep printing it what's the value that's the exact question and that's what that's what brings us to this this show uh, this concept of scarcity is is really important. So let's look. So we're at this point in the 70s, but let's just kind of back up uh, a, a little bit here for one second. When I had a paper dollar bill uh, in 1928, if you looked at it, it said that it could be, you could take that to the bank, actually to the treasury, and you could convert it for gold. And so kind of like how you know, trading an ox for grain was difficult. What people said is, look, walking around with gold in the right amount is difficult. What we're going to do is we're going to hold your gold for you. So it's going to be safer. And we're going to give you paper bills. And each paper bill is backed by gold. People are like, well, that makes sense. You've got an army and stuff like that. You keep my gold safe and I get a piece of paper and I can redeem it for the gold. Good trade for everybody. So then along come banks and banks say, well, look, you don't want all those pieces of paper just at your house. They're not safe. Why don't you put your pieces of paper into my bank? And so then you say, well, wait a second. Uh, how do I know that it's safe? And the bank says, well, the government's got my back and the government's got your back. So then if everyone, if the government has everybody's back, then obviously the banks are safe. The people are safe. And so you can come in, get a piece of paper from the bank, take it over to the government, redeem it for a piece of gold. And that's why we had this scarcity system and an aspect of trust. To your exact point, people started violating that trust. I don't need to keep as much gold. I can lend out more money. I can do a lot of things. And so once that tie was broken, then there was a question. Well, will people be a good steward of this money and will we see scarcity or not? And I think what we can see is that over the past 50 years, we do not have scarcity. We've created a lot of money and there's no end in sight to, and there's no fiscal restraint anywhere. So there's a real question. What is this money? You remind me of a quote I love by Robin Sharma. And he said, every genius was first ridiculed before they were revered. And it's an underlying principle of this show where there's change makers and oftentimes change makers are ostracized. But many older ideas about the exchange of value seemed preposterous 40 years ago before the rise of digital currencies. And more importantly, before technology has made it possible to use those theories and ideas from some of the greatest economic thinkers in history. And you mentioned some of these, but I'd love if you'd tell us a little bit about some of these guys. You mentioned Plato, which some will have heard of, Adam Smith. Others less familiar, Irving Fisher, Milton Friedman, and Friedrich Hayek, because these guys were thinking about this and exploring it and foreseeing problems well before others. What I try to do in the book and in my research is I try to explore this concept of, of, of what is money. And when you ask that question, you actually can go back to, um, to Plato and um, you know, not not Plato, the thing that my kids play with. Plato, like you know, the, the great. That's, that's, that's been a lifesaver during the lockdown, man. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and what's what's interesting is this question has has been out there of why is gold a store of value, and people have questioned that throughout its 
time. So, so while gold has was been a, a relatively reasonable thing, people questioned it. And they questioned it for a lot of reasons because its value only was in that it had uh, scarcity. But we constantly were discovering new amounts and people said, you know, does that really make what we don't know how much of it's out there. And it's kind of like the story that you talked about with the geodes. And so this goes back a long time. People questioned it. And so people started to explore something called the, the credit theory of money. And that goes back a long time, basically saying that money and borrowing are just opposite sides of the same uh, coin. If, if I lend you, you know, ten dollars. Um, and you promise to pay that back to me, then then you owe me ten dollars, and and you're good for it. And if imagine I could secure it by your house or your mic that you're using right now, or whatever the case is, then debt can actually be a secure secured money is a form of money is actually an an old old concept. And in the early 1900s, a number of economists started to build on this. Irving Fisher among them. Um, and I, I refer to a number of things. We can go into more depth if we want. But the concept here is then Milton Friedman really started to kind of focus on this, this concept of, of what is money. And I, I think that where this really got built up to the most was, was when Friedrich Hayek essentially said, look, he wrote a book called The Denationalization of Money. And what it said is that simply this. If the government's money is not going to be backed by anything, then I could create a private bank. He envisioned like a Swiss bank issuing a currency that he called the Ducat. And he said, I'm going to post every day um, what is securing this currency. And I can create a private currency that is a known store of value because you'll know what is backing it because I'm going to print uh, the audited reports in the newspaper, essentially. And this currency will be superior because it will have more transparency um, and, and things backing it than this false promise uh, of the government. And this was a very influential book and I think a, a killer concept of a, of a private currency backed by something that people can see on any given day. That you can kind of see to where we are today and where I think some of these things might be going. But I think that was incredibly uh, visionary. And, and he, of course, won a Nobel Prize in economics, not directly for that uh, work, but was just one of the greatest economic thinkers of, of the past century. This brings us nicely to cryptocurrency because this is a movement and it, it touches millions of people and billions of dollars in investment, market capitalization and exchange value. Cryptocurrencies are a head melt for so many of us. And I have a big ask for you here to share because you ask these questions in the books, you pose these questions, and I'd love if you explore them for our listeners because a lot of people I talk to, and me included, struggle to get my head around cryptocurrencies and why there's so many, etc. But you do call this out. You say, here's a couple of questions you pose. What are coins versus tokens? What are securities versus utilities? And how does this relate to being a currency and a store of value that transcends time? Because as you say, billions of dollars are riding on the answers to these questions. Yeah. And it's so interesting. I, everyone makes the, com the topic always very complicated. And so I'm going to try to do kind of a, a simple approach to it. And then we can go however deep you want. But I'll kind of keep it on the outer layer of the, of the onion. I, I think the best way to start is to separate what is blockchain 
what is Bitcoin and what is cryptocurrency? And, and then we'll be able to get into what are security tokens and you know, coins and, and all those things. But, but these things are, are different from each other. And I, and I like to start by understanding essentially what blockchain is. So I have a daughter and she's 12 years old and she likes to keep a diary. Most 12-year-old girls like to do that. Well, the greatest fear for her, two things. What if she lost that diary? Because it has a lot of her secrets in it and things that she'd like to keep. And then number two is she has two brothers and they are little mischievous people. I love them, but they're crazy. And they all they want is to read her diary. So the best diary that my 12-year-old daughter could have would be one that could never be lost or destroyed and one that could be encrypted where only she could see it and that she would know what the the contents of it were, but her brothers could not look at that. So imagine that it's completely protected forever and nobody can access that information. That conceptually, you can understand how that would be a very valuable diary to a 12-year-old girl, right? What would be the worst thing is she needs to know that no one can tamper with her diary. She needs to know that, you know, she writes in there, I like uh, Mike, um, that Mike isn't erased and Aiden written in there. <laughs> so she needs to know her diary can't be tampered, can't be read, and is safe and protected everywhere. And so that is what we actually need as a, as a, as a, as a technology in many applications to create decentralized trust. And so what blockchain does is it solves this trust gap in society that we'll talk a little bit more, but that's that's really just what it does. Blockchain solves the trust gap. And while that sounds small, it's potentially more powerful than, you know, like the internet was one cool thing, the cloud took it to a new level. Solving this trust gap takes things to an even deeper level of what we can do with decentralized, full trust uh, communications and interactions. And that's what, what blockchain is. So what gave us blockchain is this concept called uh, Bitcoin. And, and what Bitcoin does is it is a limited number of units. And that's it. I don't think about it anything more than that. So all that we know with Bitcoin is that it has a limited number of units. There's nothing that backs those units. It's just a limited number of things. And to some people, um, they say, well, that looks to me like it is um, nothing because in some ways it is nothing. And to other people, it's actually a holy grail because it answers the question that you were thinking about in your rockery of, well, why is this not valuable and why are diamonds valuable in this question of scarcity? Because the world had never truly had scarcity before that. We don't actually know how many diamonds are out there. We don't. What if we found an asteroid with gold, right? If there's you don't, there, this concept of scarcity didn't exist. And, and what makes Bitcoin possible is blockchain technology. And so now that you have this concept of scarcity, a lot of people started saying, look, the dollar is not actually backed by anything. The government doesn't owe you anything with that dollar. It's not in scarce supply. And so the Bitcoin enthusiasts say, Anyone who likes gold and anyone who values scarcity should like this more because there's a limited supply. And so that technology of blockchain lets this concept of limited supply, which is very special and had never existed before, now exist.
Well, the, the problem with that is that, as you kind of said, every action has these kind of counter reactions and maybe these unintended consequences. But once you can now create that super diary and you can create this concept of limited supply, well, then other coins and tokens started to be uh, created. And, and what those are is essentially they if, if you can make a Bitcoin with a limited supply of 21 million tokens, Actually, Kevin, the guy we were talking about from China, from Hangzhou, Kevin and I made a, a, a Kevin coin. And you can use the same blockchain technology. We could make an Aiden coin and we could say, well, Bitcoin's valuable because it has a limited supply of 21 million units. Why don't we just make an Aiden coin with 10 million units? Let's do it. Let's valuable. do it, man. Let's, Let's do, do it. it. <laughs> and, and this is an Achilles heel of the argument that people say now – we actually can create limited supply and we can know that it's limited supply. But if you can create an infinite number of items with limited supply, then limited supply is no longer valuable by itself. And so um, these tokens are, are then some of them, what they are, are doing is they're saying my token is, is valuable where Bitcoin doesn't directly do anything. And some, Bitcoin people will get a little bit mad about that. We'll come back to it. But let's just kind of say conceptually doesn't really do much of anything. So these other tokens are saying, no, our token is actually valuable because we create a blockchain that has a use in society where we can help protect 12-year-old girl diaries. Or we could protect titles to your car, titles to your house. Um, the implica the, um, uh, we can tell you if your tomato actually is organic. Um, all of those, when they run through our blockchain, use our token and our token is is essentially access to our blockchain so this this concept of tokens here again people are overthinking it i use when i get on the subway in chicago i use a token that's in my wallet i run it up against the turnstile and that token lets me in when i use our bikes we have these community bikes i just take a token up and i can hop on a bike and i can ride it around when i want to get into my gym i use a token to get into it and I scan to get into yoga. I use a token to get into my office building. Tokens are simply access. What was really helpful for me was taking the concept of the Federal Reserve where the gold was, and I had essentially an IOU, which was a piece of paper that went, you have this much gold in there. And if you use that as a mental model, and then map on stuff like I use the bus and I have a, a card, essentially, that is essentially the same thing. It's a token that represents uh, my gold essentially in a new world in a digital world that that i found that really helpful way to understand it all i'm glad that it's helpful and what you said makes me think we need to kind of even take it to the next layer you see what happened was when you had that dollar bill and you had the government on the other side saying that they had the gold the government had the incentive to be like not keep as much gold and that's basically what the constant problem was the cool thing about blockchain is we can just create a, a, a club. It's the Tom and Aiden club. And it'd be nice if we get like a few other people, but I can look at the diary and I can audit what the diary says every day. Now the diary is in gibberish, right? So, you know, the, it, the uh, uh, part of the code to this call is D87CC. But you and I can both agree on, on what it says. And then that makes it immutable and that creates uh, trust. So sometimes I like to, it works well in the United States. Um, uh, 
our constitution starts out with the terms we the people but you can't change that to we the tomatoes like everybody knows <laughs> that the constitution starts out like we the people that's a form of a blockchain even if you destroyed the united states constitution there's copies of it and we know what that word is so the way that relates to this concept of what you were talking about with the, if the government is saying yeah i have gold here but you, they're not a trusted party these decentralized ledgers are can, can create complete trust where we know because we have all independently verified and you can't change it because the block will reject it. And so now if I can have a full decentralized audit of saying, yep, Aiden has X in gold or whatever asset that you actually own or whatever activity you want to have happen, we can now manage that with decentralized trust. And the only way that can happen is you have to have access to that trust and that access happens through tokens. And that's why some people say, well, tokens are valuable because they facilitate blockchain activity. So we covered kind of what blockchain is. It has to have some form of access. That's what a token is. And then coins are things like Bitcoin, which have limited supply. Bitcoin does have some applications to it because it is a strong blockchain. That gets a little bit more advanced. But conceptually, I think we're in the right place. Right. So FDR took everybody's gold and gave them tokens for the gold, which was cash, which was, was bill, dollar bills. Trust was... I love how you just said that. And I, I need to... Act, that is what it is. The cash was a token representing the gold. And he took the gold and said, here's your token. That's the right way of looking at it. That's really good. But then fast forward to 2008, we had hiccups of trust until then. And then we had a major breakdown of trust, a meltdown of trust where money was essentially being printed. There was no gold representing that money, but there was actually, it was like monopoly money everywhere. The tokens were monopoly tokens and they weren't real. And it led to this massive breakdown of more than the economy of trust. And it, it was a Sputnik moment for cryptocurrencies, for Bitcoin, for blockchain, and that's why we've heard about it so much since then in the last decade. It was a Sputnik moment for trust. And that's what you had with the, you know, you had the Occupy movements that were not just, you know, something started with Occupy Wall Street, but that was a, a global phenomenon. There's a lot of people that feel that they're working harder and harder and, and they're not getting ahead. And I think that a lot of the reason for that is, is because we don't have a stable store of value um, in our society. And people started to just hit the limit in, in 08. And that's, that's when uh, Bitcoin essentially was, was born. And that's, that's when, uh, shortly thereafter, that, 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 uh, that's, that was the birth of blockchain technology and this movement that truly is a global movement toward decentralization of people saying, these central authorities, banks and governments, I trusted them and they let me down. They let me down and, and I don't trust them anymore and I don't want to have to trust them. And they have too much incentive to violate my trust and they keep doing it. And so when you look at where we are now, like now, now, that process just continues. Every problem that we see, we just are solving by creating trillions and trillions of dollars. We're doing that in this crisis right now. Uh, it, I joked about it in the book. I said, what if we just gave every American $50,000? That's not that far off from what we're almost actually doing in response to this crisis. It's crazy. We're just creating money out of thin air. 
And that's not a risk-free trade to exactly what you said before. Every action that you take has a counteraction. We have to start thinking what's the cost to society and what's the cost to the working person if we're just if money's nothing and we're just creating it to solve problems, is that really something that we can do? I don't I don't think so. I don't believe we can. There's a beautiful passage from the book that I'd love you to explain here, and it goes as follows. With blockchain, money can be fully commoditized, just like corn or wheat, in a fully decentralized, self-regulating, not-for-profit, free market system. Everyone, not just governments and banks, may have the opportunity to compete on full faith in credit, making secure, anonymous financial transactions without any gaps in trust. Blockchain will facilitate a new way, a new approach to a decentralized, safe and secure store of value for all. Doing so will revolutionize banking, currency and consumer lending as we know them. There's a lot there's a lot there for you to unpack, Tom. And I'd love if you would give it an overview of what you mean by that passage. Thank you. It's one of my favorite passages, and I'm, I'm glad you came across that one. It is kind of a mouthful when I hear it that way. So I'll try to take a more simplified approach to it with two things. So I was born and raised in Iowa, which is one of the smaller states in the, the country by population in the middle of the country. And we have a bunch of farmers there. And what those farmers do is they grow corn and then they take that corn to market and they sell it. And then that becomes grain that's used for things like, you know, making cereal and, and so forth. And that corn is actually very regulated and measured to adhere to a certain quality. And any producer of corn, you know, you and I could raise corn and we could sell it into the same system. Uh, you could have a large commercial operation raising it and selling it in the same system, but everyone grades the corn on the same quality of the characteristics uh, that it that it gets. That passage, what I'm essentially saying is, look, man, uh, well, Aiden, have you ever seen the movie The Matrix? Yeah, love it, man. Love it. Okay. And so I know like not everybody has seen it, but the, the concept of uh, when you think about that is 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 that this this world isn't what we actually think it is, and, and it, it it talks about kind of this this role of of, of each individual person and, and what it is. And so, without kind of you know getting into that, I essentially look at this and say, what if each of us as individuals was an individual store of value? Um, Kind of like what Frederick Hayek was saying, where what if I created a bank and then I just posted that information? What if you take it one step further? What if instead of having you know 300 currencies in the world today, you basically had a billion of them? We are each a store of value. You, Aiden, you make money, you have assets, you have things in your life. I make money, I have assets, I have things in my life. What if I could see in a decentralized way what those assets were, what your liabilities were, I could rank and sort that and I could group it just how a farmer does and I could sort it by quality. And then I could say, you know what, Aiden, a loan to you backed by your car or your cell phone is actually backed by something. A loan to the government is not backed by anything. I'd rather lend Aiden the money at a lower rate than the government. I trust Aiden more because I can see through to what is held on the other side. And what you can actually get to in this world is a lower cost of borrowing and a better, more pure store of value that is sorted and grouped on a global scale. And you actually just create a system that 
leapfrogs any government, it leapfrogs any digital currency, uh, because it's, it's, it's essentially saying the store of value is things. You're basically taking the credit theory of money and combining it with high X vision on steroids, right? Like in 5G at a super decentralized level, the individual level. And I think that that could be a really utopian view of a, of a perfect and stable, constant store of value, always backed by things. Thinking about this at a, a macro level across society and beyond the exchange of value. I thought what's really happened in the last few decades is we've heard scandal after scandal in institutions that had access to power, and they were the middlemen in so many ways. And to bring that to a very high level, I thought about the Catholic Church and the scandals of the Catholic Church. And, you know, I believe in a higher power. What I've lost faith in is the middleman, which is actually the church and the clergy. And, and I hate to say that because I'm sure there's good ones out there, as there are good institutions. And I want to say that because I don't want to tar everyone with the same brush. But mm -hmm. what we've lost faith in is that middleman. And the term decentralization means getting rid of the middleman where I can deal with Tom and we can be trusted with each other and we have a transparent token that we both can check in on to make sure nobody's changed back to your diary analogy that we're on the same page literally of the diary we can check in and i thought that that's a really helpful way to think of it from a societal level yeah i i think you just said it perfectly when we when the internet first came out i thought oh well this internet is is, is great but then when the cloud came out, I didn't understand what it would actually do for me. Now, this is coming from a guy I used to drive around in my car with 100 CDs. And of course, my dream would have been if someone said, hey, what if you could play any song on demand anytime you want? Well, that'd be great. What if you could get any movie anytime on demand? I didn't understand what the cloud would do for me and how it would change my life. And we use the cloud for everything. We use the cloud to make this right now. Blockchain solves exactly what you were talking about. And it's this trust gap. And so much of our society has been built around middle people and governments trying to facilitate trust in the middle, yet they're continuously violating that trust and violating their role. And I think people are saying, again, not everybody, and I like what you said, you can't paint everything with a brush, but there's enough bad apples out there that if there's a better way that we can transact directly with full trust, that is very powerful for society. And that's what I get really excited about. I think this is the opportunity for banks. Lots of people who work in financial institutions listen to this show and a lot of people who work in exchange of value systems as well. And, you know, I have to send you, we had a beautiful opportunity to have an interview, a seven-part documentary with the founder of Visa, D. Hawk. He had the exact same vision, man. He wanted to create this universal exchange of value, but for the right reasons. And one of the chinks in the armor for him was the command and control and trying to get as much, squeeze as much value out of it for the middleman. And, and that conflicted with his values. But what is the opportunity do you see? Because you, you talk deeply about this, and I highly recommend, I think this is a must-read book for anyone who works in either future of exchange of value or current exchange of value. 
or old school <laughs> exchange of value. <laughs> what is the opportunity for the bank of the future? I think the opportunities are vast. And so, you know, within the book, what I try to lay out is I think that we need to appreciate and respect the history to understand the events that have brought us to where we are today. And that today we are at an inflection point as we look forward. And so how bankers and policy makers respond to this decentralized movement, I think you kind of have two choices. You could try to prevent it, which I think would only make it spread faster, or you have to have a strategic view on how you're going to embrace it, which is what I think is better. And I think that like any other technology, the more that we collectively embrace it, the stronger our system becomes, the stronger our system becomes, the stronger our society becomes. And if we can transact with transparency and trust, but also anonymity, that is an incredible utopia and opportunity for society, bankers, and everybody. But you have to embrace it to be a part of it. Speaking of exchange of value, I'd like to thank our partners, Microsoft for Startups. Tom, before we finish up, I think that's a beautiful way to finish today's show with your vision for the future and your vision for the middleman of the future, if there indeed is one. Where can people find out more about your book, about your webinars, about your work, etc.? Well, thanks for asking. I want to share on that shout out to Microsoft and thank not only what they're doing for small businesses, but in the blockchain space to make blockchain accessible and, and, and usable to more people and facilitate this decentralized uh, view. With respect to uh, me, if you're interested in the book, um, the book is called Money Without Boundaries, How Blockchain Will Facilitate the Denationalization of Money. Um, it's available wherever books are sold online, and there's also a Money Without Boundaries website. If you're ever interested in my consulting services, I, I do work with a lot of different financial institutions. Uh, you can find our website at tja.global, like Thomas John Anderson, just tja.global, and we'd love to speak with you. Author of Money Without Boundaries, How Blockchain Will Facilitate the Denationalization of Money, Thomas J. Anderson, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.